starting a new series today, and it's called Winning at Home. And so to help us think about that, um, you know, if, if we consider the statistics, and I don't have statistics today, we're going to look at some stats as we, over the next few weeks, but we think as statistics, they reflect that overall, we're not exactly winning at home. And we don't necessarily have to have the stats to know this, because we can just think about our experience, our experiences and the experiences of those we love. And I think if we look around, here's what we see, that when it comes to Um, relationships with spouses, parent-child relationships, relationships with siblings, relationships with closest friends. Here's a theme we see. Strained relationships seem to be more common than thriving relationships. And so as we think about, like, can we change that? Is it even possible to reverse that, to have more thriving relationships? That's exactly what this series is about and what we're going to be diving into. So to understand where we're going, we need to take a few moments from the jump and define home. Like, what does it mean to win at home? Now, if you are married, if you're married with kids, if you're single with kids, you probably immediately thought about your spouse or your kids, and that's good, but that's not all we're talking about. More on that in just a moment. But if if you're here and you're single, here's what you know about being single. That creates some unique challenges that you're walking through, especially when you find yourself single in your late 20s or single in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Some of you are single and you've been single for a long time. You've never been married. Others of you, you might've been married and you lost a spouse or you walked through a divorce and you find yourself in a season that you didn't expect that you would ever be in again. So how does this relate to you if you are single? Well, first off, know this. That, that as we look at how God's blessing public church, we have more families than ever. And what I mean by families is parents with kids, like there's kids everywhere, okay, just look around. Um, and we are so thankful for that. And at the same time, like we refuse to just focus on parents and kids and neglect our single people. Because know this, you are a vital part of our family. And so even in thinking through a series like this, but not just in this series, in in everything we do, we think about how can we help you feel like you're a part of our family? That's one of the reasons we have so many different types of community groups, because we want you to be able to be with people and go, man, these are my people and these are my family. And also just to say, if, as we talk about and define winning at home, if you're like, there ain't nobody there, Like, like, I don't know who these people are. I don't think I actually have these people. Then at any point in this series, email jade, J-A-D-E at publicchurch.com. We call Jade the great connector. (laughs) But seriously, she has a God-given gift to just connect people and just reach out to her. And we'd love to just, for Jade to start using her gift and maybe help you to find some of these people. Because we need people to walk through life with. So whether you're single, married, single again, no matter what, this is a series for us. In fact, um, on a, what I call a red team, and red team means there's people that review the talk and give me feedback before it gets to you guys, like give me wins and refining. And um, somebody on my red team, they said, you know, when I heard the word home, I immediately thought about comfort. And then I also thought about the fact that it can be a place where it's so easy to get complacent. And this person said, I'm a 38-year-old single person who lives alone. And it's really easy for me to get apathetic and unmotivated at home in my aloneness. And they said their grandfather often used to tell them that, you know, you are who you really are when no one else is around. 
And so maybe that's what you're thinking about. And maybe that's how God's gonna challenge you is how am I really at home? But for all of us, no matter our relationship stage, we wanna take a moment and define home. So if you're single or if you're married, think about the people that are just your people. Think about the people that would come into your home. And here's the key, you don't clean for them. You know the people I'm talking about? Like you may straighten up a little bit, but there's certain people that when they come over, it's like, oh my goodness. When they walk in the door, you're like exhausted. Like, oh, and your house looks better than it has in years. And you're like, I'm never inviting people like this over again. And there's other people that they come in and you're like, watch the toy. There's Legos, they're dangerous. Could you put that in the dishwasher? Here, fold these towels. You know, like, we're talking about family. Also, so think about people that are just around that are in your home. Maybe it helps if, if any of this language helps. Maybe you would call them your, your home team, your crew, your squad, your, your people. These are the people that you cry with and celebrate with. That when something bad or something good happens, you're reaching out to them and you guys are navigating that together. So for those of us married with kids, it's not just that nuclear family. Think beyond that. And also, here's an acknowledgement for all of us if we think about the traditional definition of family, and obviously we're getting beyond that, but if we think about the traditional definition of family, it's very likely there's some people in, in that traditional definition that we don't necessarily like being around and we may clean up our home for because they're going to criticize what our home looks like, uh, but, but they still get in because of blood. Okay, so there's, there's people that we want in, there's people that just, they're in and we should include them too. So if we could just take a moment just 30, 45 seconds, it's not going to be long, but, but on your phone, if you've got a journal, maybe just mentally, I, I would just invite us, I did this this week in preparation, just write down, who are my people? When it comes to winning at home, who's my squad? Who, who is my home team? I'm going to be quiet and give us just a moment to write that, and the last thing I'll say before I do is like, somebody on my home team lives in Romania, okay, like Ben Wells, he's on my home team, like, like it, they don't even have to live here to be family and the people that we're walking through life with. So take just a moment, reflect on that, and that'll set us up for the series. About 20 seconds left. As you reflect on that, what I found that if I had to think too hard, they might be in my yard, but not in my home. I'm just saying, okay. <laughs> But, but there's people, and, and we want to make sure that we're winning with them. And so what we're going to do throughout this series, just to let us know where we're going, is we're going to talk about five principles for winning at home. I'm actually going to go ahead and give you the five principles so you can decide what weeks you want to come and what weeks you want to skip, just trying to help you out, okay? So uh, here's the first three principles. Today, we're going to be talking about the awareness principle. We'll define that later on. Next week will be the replacement principle. Part three of the series is the long game 
principle. And then we get to part four. We're going to talk about the measuring principle and then the attraction principle in part five. So again, now you know which weeks you want to come, which weeks you don't want to come. Just trying to help you out there. But as we walk through these principles and we talk about what it means to be winning at home, no, we're not just talking about like one win. And we're also want to make sure we don't beat ourselves up when we take some losses because we're going to take some losses. But this series is about what's the trajectory? What's the overall direction? And I suspect that for some of us, at least with some of the people we wrote down, the trajectory right now is more towards losing than it is towards winning. And so my prayer throughout this series is that the Holy Spirit would empower us to maybe put some habits in place, to get some reps, to put some rhythms in place so that over the course of these next five weeks, what I'm praying for is a shift. I'm praying for a shift that there's some single people who are really lonely and there's a shift and they find the thriving relationships and friendships they need. I'm praying for the person that may be in this room, in the lobby or watching online and you are on the brink of divorce. Those divorce papers might actually be on the table that you left when you came here this morning and that those get put in the shredder as God begins to restore your marriage. I'm praying for a bad parent-child relationship to not become perfect in five weeks, but to shift and suddenly be on a trajectory towards healing and connecting where before there may not have been any positive connections. That's what I'm praying for. And so maybe this series feels too optimistic for you. Well, we're gonna talk about that too because what Jesus teaches us is that it is possible for us to be on a path towards winning at home. So we're gonna start off Kick off the beginning of the series in the beginning with Genesis chapter 2. The very first book of the Bible is where we're going. And I invite you to turn there in your Bible or Bible apps. As you go there, for those of you who don't follow Jesus, just a, a special message for you as we launch off. First off, thank you. Thank you for being here. I know it takes courage to come into an environment like this. It takes courage to watch or listen to something like this. So Thank you for being here. And second off, I just want to invite you to begin applying these principles as you're exploring Jesus. Now know this, there's going to be a limit to your application. Because one thing that we as Jesus followers believe is when we follow Jesus, he puts the Holy Spirit inside of us like God moves in. And now we have resurrection power. Now we have power to do the things that we couldn't do before. So there will be a limit. But I encourage you just start walking it out. Test out the way of Jesus. And, and here's the good thing if you don't follow Jesus. All of this is optional. Now, Jesus followers, none of it's optional. When we chose to follow Jesus, we said we're going to follow Jesus. So we got to do this. Back to those of you who don't follow Jesus. You're like, I, I don't follow him yet. Maybe that's a good thing. Anyway, there's a point. Being, like, like, try this out. And actually, several years ago, we did a series on relationships. And there was a young lady who really had very limited knowledge of the gospel, scripture, anything. But she started watching and started coming and started just trying this stuff out, and over time, she began to realize that the way of Jesus is better than anything else she'd been given, and she followed Jesus, and now she's a leader in our church. So I'm just saying you don't know the work that Jesus could do if we just start applying this and walking this out. So I'm expecting as we dive into this. So again, we're kicking off in Genesis chapter 2. God has created everything, and it's good. It's whole. It's perfect. Sin, brokenness has not entered the world yet. But even in the midst of the wholeness, 
Here's what God says in chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. To which all the single people are like, there we go. Something's wrong with me because I'm single. The Bible says it. No, no, no. Credit to Joel Thomas for helping me see that this is not saying that everyone should be married. What God is saying here is that there's a problem when we're alone. That we are designed for community. Why are we designed for community? Because God exists in community. Like God, our God is one who expresses himself in three unique persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So he exists in community. We're made in his image, which means we're designed for community. So saying even in a perfect world, if we're alone, that needs to be fixed. And so what happens in Genesis 2.24, God creates Eve, and Genesis 2.24 says this. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Yes, it is talking about marriage, but it's talking about more than marriage. Here's the point that we need to understand as we start this journey, that God address the problem of loneliness with the institution of family. That God said, there's a problem that you're alone, and so the solution is family. And you can be, have family and be in a family no matter your relationship status. You following me? And what I think we understand is that those people that we need and those relationships that we lean on the most, they seem to be constantly attacked. And they seem to be constantly undermined. It's like the thing that we need, it's almost like somebody, something is working against what we actually need to thrive. And that's exactly what's happening. See, in Genesis chapter 3, as we keep going, sin enters the world. Adam and Eve, out of pride, choose their way out of God's way, a decision I make almost daily to think that I know better than God. And so sin enters the world brokenness enters the world. And in the midst of the brokenness, man, we need people even more to help us walk through this. And then in Genesis chapter four, their family, this family is expanding. They have two sons, Cain and Abel. And in Genesis chapter four, verse three, it says this, when it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift. Check this out. The best, pay attention to that, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. All right, so you got sibling rivalry in the fourth chapter all right, already. And scholars debate this, but there's a lot of consensus around, like, why did God accept Abel's gift and not Cain's? And it lies in the fact that Abel was bringing his best. Cain was just bringing something, but Abel was bringing his best. And so now there's a problem, and Cain's angry, and he's downcast, he's frustrated. And so God, in his kindness, he doesn't run away from us in our anger, he pursues us. And so God pursues Cain and says, verse 6, why, do you look, why are you so angry? The Lord asks, why do you look so dejected? He's like, hey, well, what's going on? And then God's going to present him with a choice, because when we get angry, we have a choice at what we can do with our anger. And we have a choice at, here's the key, who we can direct our anger towards. Because if we're honest, and from this viewpoint, it's easy to see, whose fault is this? Cain's. He made the mess. Sometimes we make the mess. But we blame everyone else for the mess that we made, don't we? Am I the only one that does that? Okay, I didn't think so. And so Cain could get mad at God. You didn't make the standard clear. 
He could just own it. Let's see what happens. God says this first. uh, You'll be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Because sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. In other words, sin's right there, King. You got a choice. And in our relationships with those that we love the most, we have so many choices, don't we? As we're thinking about what choice we make, let's see what choice Cain makes. One day, Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were there in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel, and he killed him. Who did Cain direct his anger towards? His brother. It was Cain's fault. He could have shaken his fist at himself. He could have shaken his fist at God, but yet he directed his anger towards his brother. To which we all feel pretty good about ourselves because if you're in this room, if you're watching, we probably haven't killed a sibling. Don't raise your hand if you have, okay? Um, Just let our safety team know later so we can be aware. We've we've probably not killed a sibling. We've probably not killed anybody on our list. We're like, huh, we're not doing so bad. And then we read Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says that if we get angry with, if we express hatred towards our brother, towards someone made in the image of God, then we are guilty of what Cain did. We're guilty of murder. So I've never killed anybody, just to be clear. I want to get that out there, okay? But I sure have killed people with my tongue. I sure have killed people with being passive-aggressive with anger. (laughs) I sure have expressed hate and vengeance and frustration towards people. So sign me up as guilty, just like Cain. And I think if we just take a look, it seems like it's really easy to lose at home. And if we read the story, it's at the beginning, we're like, "Well, well, maybe things change. Maybe this is just Genesis 4 and Genesis 5 gets better. Sadly, this is not an isolated event in the narrative scripture. It's just the beginning of a pattern. See, in Genesis chapter 6, there's a guy named Noah. If you haven't heard of him, it's an incredible story. And he builds an ark, and he's obedient to God. And then after they survive this flood, and he with his family, they make it through this tumultuous, catastrophic event, and they're united as a family until one of his sons shames and mocks his dad. Now, his dad has passed out drunk, so he is not like, um, you know, innocent in this, but his son has a choice, and he chooses to shame his dad, and then here in Genesis, um, I think it's chapter 9, in this narrative of the flood, what happens is Noah actually curses his grandson, more losing at home. And then there's a guy named Abraham, Father Abraham, one of the patriarchs of our faith. And in Genesis chapter 12, God chooses Abraham and says, hey, I'm going to make you a great nation. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Your family is going to be awesome. Except it wasn't always awesome because Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they get impatient. And Sarah has this idea of like, hey, I'm not able to have a kid, so why don't you sleep with my servant? This is a terrible idea. But Abraham's like, sounds pretty good to me. And so Abraham sleeps with Sarah's servant. Hope you're following me here. And then, shocker, the servant begins to mock her master, Sarah, because, hey, I'm pregnant and you're not. Ha, ha, ha. Sarah gets mad. I mean, I think you see where this is coming, soap opera in Genesis. And Sarah gets mad. And 
There's a son born, but here's how the story ends. Abraham has to send the servant and one of his own sons away. He kicks him out of his home. Doesn't end well. Maybe it gets better, except for the fact that his son Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob completely manipulates his older brother and steals something that is rightfully his. Some people would say he does irreparable damage. The family drama continues. Then Jacob, he has 12 sons. Maybe he can get it right. But he shows favoritism towards one of his sons. The other, 10 of the other sons really don't like this. One's too young to really care. He actually likes that son the second best. So he's like, hey, at least I'm second. But the rest of them, three through 12, they're like, hey, we don't like this. And so what they do is they take their brother and they sell him into slavery. I hope you haven't done that either. Sold a sibling into slavery. They sell him into slavery and they go back to their dad and they deceive him into thinking that his favorite son is dead. Suddenly our family drama is not looking so bad. It's not limited to Genesis. David, the greatest king in Israel's history. Here's just a snippet of some things that happens to him. One of his sons rapes his half-sister. One of his other sons leads a coup to dethrone him. And then David's military general has to kill his son to get his to get David back on the throne. Look, the Bible is filled with stories of losing at home. And so are our lives, aren't they? So why is this? Why are we losing at home so often? Back to Genesis 4-7. There's a detail there we need to notice. God says this, sin, sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master, What God does is he tries to direct Cain and his anger and his energy towards sin. But instead, Cain directs all his anger and energy towards his brother, which leads to the first principle in our series, the awareness principle. And here is the awareness principle. The enemy does not live in your home, but he is attacking your home. Principle number one is this. The enemy does not live in your home, but the enemy is attacking your home. Abel was not the enemy. And God was even trying to help him see this. Hey, stop looking at Abel. Dude, you did this. And and there's sin. There's a temptation here. Redirect towards the actual enemy. Peter, later on, one of Jesus' followers, he picks up on this and he defines who the enemy is. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, here's what he writes. He says, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. He says, watch out, be alert, because there is an enemy. And yet most of the time we act like the enemies in our home, don't we? Tom Bowler, who's been an elder here, just a mentor to me, Tom has said this before, he and Cindy love investing in young couples. Tom says, when you're in a fight with your spouse, you actually aren't fighting your spouse. You're actually fighting an outside attack, whether you realize it or not. But yeah, come on, married people. We just direct all our energy towards our spouse, don't we? If you would just do this. And so we divide instead of uniting and going, you're not the enemy. 
but there's an enemy out here. And so I need to be aware that the people on your list, none of them are the enemy. Now, can they be used by the enemy? Yes, just like we can, but they're not the enemy. And so much of our losing at home and so much of our relational strife is because we're fighting each other rather than uniting to fight a very real enemy. So in the awareness principle, here's a question. This is the first part of the action today. There's gonna be another part of this. But here's a question that, that really helps me to wake up and see there's more going on than meets the eye. And this question is really simple and it's just this. What else is going on? That when there's relational strife with somebody I love, I need to get some space, I need to pause, and I just need to ask this question, what else is going on? We're going to look at some scripture a little bit later that shows there's always something else going on. But just from my life, Tuesday, I was irrationally frustrated with Whitney. She's perfect, and so there's no reason to ever be rationally frustrated with her, Okay. I was irrationally frustrated with her. And thankfully, I had some space. And as I began to think, I'm like, okay. I, I processed it, like, like asking this, like, what else is going on? Like, it's not that she's not really done anything worthy of this reaction that I have in me. Um, like, and it was clear, and there's somebody else putting thoughts in my mind. There's somebody else fighting against our marriage. Somebody else who wants to attack us. And then yesterday, just to let y'all know, I messed up. Yesterday, I think I would like get this right in preparing for the series. No, um, yesterday, I noticed this flip and how I was reacting to her and I wasn't empathizing and, and I wasn't listening very well and I was overreacting. And it just continued for a period of a few hours and then I had a little bit of space and, and I didn't directly ask this question, but it's just ingrained in me over the years. And I'm thinking, I'm not, I'm not what else is going on, but I just like, it's part of my mindset now. And you may not forever just stop and go, what else is going on? But I hope it becomes part of our mindset that we're just aware there's more going on. And so I was just thinking, man, what else is going on? I'm like, okay, this is what we're teaching on. Of course, the enemy is trying to attack and divide and begin to think like, I, I mean, she's my best. I told her like, you're my best friend. I do not want it to be like this. And I had to apologize because what I was letting the enemy do is divide us instead of us being united fronts. And I don't think I'm the only one that lets that happen. Whether you're single, married, have kids, don't have kids, there's people that we love and we need to be locking arms with, not sharing blows with. Because they're not the enemy. But the enemy is attacking. So will we let the Holy Spirit give us awareness to, to pause and go, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> this isn't your character. And maybe they do something like, I do sometimes. It's just rude and just out of character. Whitney is so good at being like, hey, that was a blip. This is not who you are. You, you following me? But we're not going to get there if we're, all our energy, like Cain, is just focused on, ah, on the person. So there's got to be an awareness. Hey, there is more going on here. And then here's the thing. Once we have an awareness, we could just go like, oh, this stinks. So I'm just going to get beat down for a while. No, no, no. God wants us to fight. In fact, in Nehemiah, Nehemiah is one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. They're, they're getting attacked. 
And in Nehemiah chapter 4, I hope that we will have this mindset that Nehemiah has. Nehemiah says this in chapter 4, verse 14. He says, I looked over the situation. In other words, he took some time to assess it. That's that awareness. He didn't just keep going. He paused and he assessed. What else is going on here? I looked over the situation. I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and said to them, hey, don't be afraid of the enemy. Or is he saying like, hey, we're here. The enemy's out there, but don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. The, new, the NIV says fight for your families. I'm just wondering if we could unite as a church and say, you know what? There is an enemy attacking us, but we're going to unite and we're going to fight for our families. We're going to fight for our children. We're going to fight for our spouses. We're going to fight for our loved ones. We're going to fight for the people we need instead of fighting against them. And that's the spirit of Nehemiah. And it starts with saying, remember who God is. If we kept reading, he says, the Lord will fight for us. Know that God wants us to win at home. And they're looking and going, man, God's going to fight for us. Here's what we can say. God has fought for us. And his name is Jesus. And he fought for us when he went to the cross. And he died to defeat the sin that's crouching at the door, to begin to unite what the enemy has been dividing since Genesis chapter 4. Because on our own, here's how we will operate. We will agree with Genesis chapter 2 that we need people, and then we will live out Genesis chapter 4 and fight our people, won't we? But Jesus says it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, here's what the cross has done for us. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. Man, I just hope we can internalize this. It says, God sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for sins. Totally me, my opinion. Can't back this up. But I think that in Genesis chapter Form and God was saying, hey, sin is crouching at the door, but you don't have to be mastered by it. Here's what he knew, because I'm sending my son. And there's coming a time where he's going to die on a cross. And, and here's the reality that this passage is teaching us, that when Jesus is our king, sin is no longer our master. But, but here's also a reality we live in. Verse 6, it says, so letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. Death, Cain killing Abel us destroying relationships, us damaging those we love, us hurting people on our home team. But letting the Spirit, come on, letting the Spirit control your minds leads to life and peace. That's good stuff. And so then in verse 9, you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. Look, some of you are like, Todd, you don't know my story. I am in generational bondage of just family strife. It's been loneliness after loneliness or divorce after divorce or parent-child's not liking each other. Man, you can break the pattern through the power of Jesus. The cycle can be broken. In fact, verse 12 says this. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation. Can we just say that together? No obligation. Come on, like you feel it and mean it. No obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. It's a story since Genesis chapter 4. 
It's a story of our lives with dead relationships and relationships on life support and relationships trending towards death. But if through the power of the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, come on, you will live. I just hope that somebody walks out of here today having the Holy Spirit spoken to you and that this is His words. Winning is possible. On our own? But through the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit. Nolan mentioned something that stood out. You mentioned something that stood out to you in that song. For me, it was just a fresh thing, and it was this statement and this line that talks about the, the lowest of the graves. And I was thinking, man, if Jesus went to the lowest of lows, if he faced death, and if he overcame that, then he can overcome any relational damage or strife that we are walking through. Through the name of Jesus, he says it's not irreparable because restoration is possible. And it's not going to go back to the way it was. It's going to be different. That's a lie from the enemy. If he's like, yeah, it's just all going to be back to normal. And then you start walking it out and it's like, it's never going to be normal. That's not what he says. He just says he's going to restore. And he's the one writing that story. We don't know what it's going to look like. But man, our lives are so much better when we give him the pen and let him write a story of restoration and forgiveness and reconciliation and winning. So the second part of our action today is not just that we're aware, not just that we ask what else is going on, but also that we know how to fight. That once we realize there is something else going on, now it's time to armor up and go to battle. Not against people in our family. The enemy is not in your home, but against those who are attacking your home. And so if you would, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter six. If you don't have this, man, write this down. This is our battle plan, Ephesians chapter six. And I'm gonna give you the action from the beginning. And then I'm gonna talk us through it and then we're gonna actually do it. Because part of being a public church is that we equip you to follow Jesus in your everyday lives. If we end this talk and we've not said, hey, here's how to fight, then we've missed something. That's part of our DNA and part of our vision. So, so the challenge, we ask the question, what else is going on, awareness, and then we pray the armor of God over our homes, over our families. We fight the way God tells us to fight. Here's what Ephesians chapter six says. It starts off and says, a final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Man, when we start like that, we're reminded it's not be strong in our own strength, it's in God. And what's his mighty power? It's resurrection power. It's grave robbing power. <laughs> Let's start there. And then awareness, put on all of God's armor so you'll be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil because he's attacking us. And here's how we know that the awareness principle is true. There's something, someone else attacking us. Verse 12, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. That's who's attacking us. It's not the people we can see. But I'm telling you, unless we begin to ask the question, what else is going on? Unless we anchor ourselves in this word to fight, here's what we will drift towards. It's way easier to fight a perceived, um, it's way easier to fight an enemy who is perceived, but not really the enemy, than it is to fight an enemy who is real and unseen. It's just easier. It's easier to get mad at our spouse than to get mad at the devil because we can't see him. 
And don't say your spouse looks like the devil. That will not help. Don't say they act like the devil. That will not help. Don't say your kids act like that's not going to help people. That's what we're trying to help you with. But it's so easy to take it out on somebody we can see and forget that there's a real enemy we can't see. So we anchor in this text because it tells us who we should really be fighting. And then he goes on to say this. So therefore, put on every piece, all of God's armor. Look, we can't skip some. So you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. I love that, standing firm. We're going to get knocked down. But Proverbs says the righteous gets knocked down seven times, but he gets up eight. We're going to take some losses, but the overall trajectory is winning. So so what does this look like? I'm just going to pause here. And I'm going to talk through it, and then we're going to just pray this together. So what I challenge us to do is every morning, pray this. Every morning, to get up, get out your Bible, open up your Bible app, and pray this. Read the scripture. Set yourself in a mindset of awareness. My, my enemy is not in my home, but there's an enemy attacking my home. And then pray, God, I just want to put on, and here's the key, list your home team. List your people. Like when I'm praying this in the morning, it's not just for me. I'm praying this over Whitney and Liam and Oliver and Ella, and I'm praying this over my home team. You may not be praying the armor of God over you, but I'm praying it over you. These are my people. And so I'm praying that we would put on the belt of truth. Okay, what does that mean? Who is truth? Jesus is truth, John 14, 6. Jesus is truth. And what is the story of Jesus is the gospel. So when I get to this point in the morning and I'm putting on the belt of truth, every morning, you know what I do? I just tell myself the gospel again. I preach the gospel to myself. And I actually ask this question. Like, God, what part of the gospel am I going to need today? You know what he said yesterday? He said I needed the empathy of Jesus. And that's exactly what I needed. And if I had just let him lead me, I would have been nicer to my wife. He prepared me for it. But he also led me to repent and apologize at the end of the day. Because he was like, I gave you what you needed. You just ignored me. I'm like, yes, I'm sorry. I'm a sinner. But I can do better the next time. Because since I'm a master, Jesus is my king. So we take the gospel and then we put on the breastplate of righteousness. And it's a simple question like this. Jesus, help me to do what is right. Because that's going to guard our hearts if we do what is right. Holy Spirit, help us to know your voice and do what is right. Put on the shoes of preparation for the gospel of peace. Jesus, you are peace and you are with me. So let me walk in peace. Let me be a peacemaker. Let me be a non-anxious presence. And then we take up the shield of faith and then there I've got some declarations that I just pray over people I love based on scripture and some scripture like we have everything we need to lead why because Jesus chose us and he supplies it all based on Philippians 419 that Jesus has no uncontrollables therefore I can control the controllables and release the rest that Jesus cares more about whatever than I do he cares more about my marriage more about our kids more about public church more about the future than I do therefore I can and will trust him I'm declaring my faith to him then we put on the helmet of salvation As we put on the helmet of salvation, I pray that those in my home team that don't follow Jesus, they would repent and follow him. And I pray that all of us would know whose we are. And we'd find our identity in Jesus. And then we take up the sword of the spirit and I just go through some scripture that I've been memorizing. And I fight. We can fight. So public worship is going to come up. And they're going to lead us in a couple of songs. And and we're going to continue to fight through those songs. But as they do, I just want to invite you to close your eyes and just join me. I'm going to lead us in this. When I finish, we'll just go straight into that first song and just continue to fight. But maybe you need to stand up. Maybe you want to go back to the prayer corner and say, hey, pray with me. Maybe you want to keep your eyes open. 
because you're tired, that's okay. Whatever you need to do, whatever your prayer posture is, maybe when I kind of slide down beside you in the seat. But I'm gonna lead us in prayer, but don't just listen to me pray, you pray. Let's let a collective prayer come up from God's people as we just pray the armor of God over us. So let's pray. A final word, be strong in the Lord and in your mighty power. Jesus, we just, we need your strength, your resurrection power, so help us to walk in it. Give us an awareness to ask what else is going on to realize that our battle is not against those in our home. There's an enemy attacking our home. Open our eyes to see that, Jesus. And right now, for for our people, we put on the belt of truth. You are truth, Jesus. So we anchor in your gospel. So I pray right now you would show us what part of the gospel we specifically need today. The fact that you intended to come and then you came, Jesus. You keep your promises. That you faced every temptation that we face, yet you never sinned. Thank you for overcoming sin. And then you died on the cross. You sacrificed your life for us to offer us forgiveness and a relationship with you. And then, Jesus, you rose from the dead, conquering death. And you ascended and you're seated as the one who reigns above it all is the ruler, the king of the universe. And then you sent your spirit to empower us and you're coming back, Jesus. And you're gonna restore all things. So we just center in the truth of your gospel. And then Jesus, we just put on the breastplate of righteousness. Holy Spirit, help us to know your voice, to be able to discern your voice and then to do what you're telling us to do, to do the right thing. We put on the shoes of peace. I pray that you would help us to know Jesus, your peace and you're with us. So calm our anxiety. We speak Jesus against anxiety. We speak Jesus against depression because you are peace. Fill us with your peace, Jesus. May we be peacemakers when we walk it out. We take up the shield of faith. And I pray that we would know that we're not here to please people, that we are here to please you, Jesus. That you, if you've said it, we can believe it. If you've said it, it is done. That you keep your promises and grow our trust in you. If it's a mustard seed faith, oh, water it, Jesus. It helps us to trust you. We take off the helmet. We put on the helmet of salvation. I pray for those listening, for those on my home team that don't know you, Jesus. They would repent and follow you. And I pray that all of us would realize that we are designed in the image of God. We are fearfully and wonderfully crafted. We are sons and daughters of the King. We are worth Jesus' life. And Father, you chose us and help us to operate out of our identity knowing that we are yours, Jesus. And then we take up the sword of the Spirit. I just pray Romans 15, 13 over our home team. I pray that you, God, the source of hope, may fill us completely with joy and peace as we trust in you. And then that we would overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, we fight with your strength. We trust.